everybody, and welcome back. We are starting season four of the Thrive Theology podcast. We are so excited that you've chosen to join us for this episode. Um, my name is Bethany, and Emily is my co-creator for this podcast, co-producer, and we love theology and we love learning um, how to apply it to our lives. And the goal of this podcast is to equip you to live thoughtfully as a Christian, because Theology isn't only head knowledge, it's a study of the heart of God. And we have been so blessed by our own study of different theological issues and researching this podcast, and we love sharing that with you. Um, Quick reminder, as we start this new season, um, we have a website, thrivetheology.com. You can go check us out there. We've got some blogs, we've got um, some articles, we've got helpful resource links. Um, We also have an Instagram at thrivetheology. You can find us there with Term Tuesdays on Tuesdays. We share different episode updates. We share different um, devotional items there. We would love to interact with you on that. Um, We would love it if you would rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you're listening um, and follow it. Make sure that you're following it so you can get new episodes right away. We are starting season four, which runs from August until the end of November, and we are going to start off this season with a three-parter on the image of God. So we're hoping it's going to be three parts. Um, (laughs) We're not sure. We just have a whole bunch of notes, and we'll see how long it takes us to get through all of them. Hopefully it is a good, well-rounded three episodes for you guys. Um, This is something that, it's one of those topics that I was like, hey, Bethany, we should talk about the image of God. And I was like, yeah, that might only be a podcast episode or two. (laughs) And then we started researching. We're like, oh, there's so many layers to this. And hopefully we'll do it justice. Yeah. It's funny because some of these simple things, if you've grown up in the church and like you're in the Christian sphere a lot, you hear image of God, image bear, imago Dei. And it's one of those words that you think you know what it means. And then as we started our research, we're like, hold up what does this actually even mean? And that led us to do a whole deep dive on a bunch of different theories um, and how that actually applies to how we live in the world as humans created by God. And we hope to share a lot of that with you to help you understand it better too. All right. So we are talking about the image of God. The first thing we want to start out by just addressing is the Latin. So Latin for image of God is Imago Dei. You'll probably hear us use Imago Dei and image of God interchangeably throughout this series. Um, They mean the exact same thing. One's just Latin and who doesn't love a little Latin now and then? Makes you sound smart. It does. So godquestions.org summarized the concept of the Imago Dei this way. Quote, God's likeness denotes our capacity to rule over creation and be in relationship with God and other humans and to exercise reason, intelligence, speech, moral consciousness, creativity, rationality, and choice. And we chose that quote because it gives a really good overview that kind of touches on all the different uh, theories of how the Imago Dei actually is played out in the world. And we are going to get into those in probably part three or maybe the second half of part two of this series, again, depending how many episodes we end up with. The image of God is the concept that there is something about humanity in particular that makes us different from the animal kingdom, and that is the thing that makes us representatives of God. Humanity is, as we know, the pinnacle of God's creation. 
This is evidence in the way that the first pages of the Bible are written and the place that humans have in the creative order. You know, God looks around and he calls everything that he's created good, and then he creates mankind and calls it very good. So there is a very clear distinction between God's creation and mankind. They're both creation, but mankind um, is the pinnacle of that. And we also know this because God blesses Adam and Eve and he gives them dominion over the rest of creation as well. So humans being made in the image of God does not mean that we are like God in a physical form because God does not have a physical form. And that's actually a theory we will touch on later on in this series. John chapter four, verse 24 says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So this is um, just affirming the fact that God is not confined to a physical body. And Exodus chapter 20, verse four um, has the classic command where God is forbidding idolatry from among the Israelite people as they come out of Egypt. It says, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sins to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So here, um, it's just really clear that the people were not to use any physical thing to represent God. Again, because God is not confined to a physical form. Now, the question is, why is it important to understand how we are made in God's image? It's important to understand the doctrine of the Imago Dei because of the truths that flow out of having a correct understanding of every person being made in the image of God. For example, unless we understand that every human being has intrinsic worth and value as an image bearer of God, we won't understand how horribly evil murder is, or we won't fully grasp the weight and sinfulness of abuse, trafficking, or even slander. These sins, because they're committed against um, a human person, are so much worse because of the weight of the image of God. Fully understanding the Imago Dei will help us to form doctrines around what it means to be God's appointed representatives, the inherent dignity of every person, and the problem with idolatry. Now, if you're a little bit confused about why we're using these terms, don't worry, we're going to get into this a lot more later. take a few minutes now and go a direction that maybe you didn't anticipate. And that is the different images of gods with a lowercase g in other Near Eastern cultures. And if you hear a weed whacker in the background, that's just my husband outside the window while we're recording. (laughs) We have thin windows. Okay, so in ancient pagan, meaning non-Israelite or Christian cultures, you had certain people who were seen as images of pagan gods. One example of this is found in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. It's a prophecy that refers to the king of Babylon, and it says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
So like I said, this passage is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And we know this because his title, the, the, the title of the whatever Babylonian king was in power, they would often be referred to as the day star. Um, some Bible translations will use the word Lucifer instead of day star. And that can be kind of confusing because we think of Lucifer as Satan. But Lucifer is just a name that means light bearer. And it's not referring to Satan in this passage. It's referring to King Nebuchadnezzar. We know that Nebuchadnezzar is later judged by God for his pride. And we find that story in Daniel chapter four. And I'm going to read verses 24 to 25 for you. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So Nebuchadnezzar is one example of how this would happen. Ancient kings were seen as the image of the God that the city or nation served. Another example is the king of Egypt, or the pharaoh. He was believed to be the mediator between Ra, who is the sun god, and the people of Egypt. And upon his death, he would be enshrined as divine. Um, even while he was alive, it was like this very otherworldly being um, who was in charge. It was like he was the voice of their god. Yeah, like the physical representation. Pagan cultures would also make all sorts of statues or images to represent their gods, this is why the Israelites were forbidden from making images of God, Yahweh God. When the Israelites demanded the golden calf from Aaron, they weren't trying to replace Yahweh. In fact, Aaron declares a feast to Yahweh upon completion of the golden calf. They were actually just trying to represent him. They wanted something that they could look at, that they could see, that they could come close to, to have like a physical representation. They were so used to this from their time in Egypt. And not only that, I wonder, actually, I just was thinking as you were saying this, Bethany, they probably had an unhealthy perspective in some respect of Moses because they wanted the golden calf upon them thinking Moses was gone. Oh, so I, they like Moses spoke for Yahweh. And then it was when Moses was gone that they were like, well, we don't have Moses anymore. And so they were making this calf to be the voice of Yahweh to them kind of thing. Still idolatrous. Totally. Oh yeah. But th that whole story is super fascinating to me. I just, as you're saying that, I'm, I can't remember the timeline of how this works, but when Moses comes down from seeing God, he has to put a veil over his face because he's shining so much. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that didn't help <laughs> this yeah. whole viewing of him, which is so fascinating. God takes serious issue with this building of the golden calf because first they had broken the first commandment, but second, because they had failed to recognize that they are the image bearers of Yahweh and have given that specific role, sacred role, to a lesser creation of God's, one that they had made from their own hands. God wanted Israel to obey his law because it was by following his law that they would properly represent him in the world. We're going to read Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the peoples of Israel. Now, depending on the finer points of your theology, you probably view this as a mandate to all Christians who have been grafted in to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, which 
we don't really have a problem with specifically. Yeah, and if you want to hear more information on that, we concluded season three with a four-part series on the covenants and covenant theology and all of that. So if you want to hear more about how Christians are grafted in and all the different stuff behind that, you can check out that series. Okay, so what does it mean to say that humans are made in the, quote, image and likeness of God? The word image has three primary meanings in the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament. The first is that it refers to physical statues or idols belonging to the cultic religions of Israel's pagan neighbors. And we can see this in Numbers 33, verse 52, which says, Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and their metal images and demolish them and demolish all their high places. The second definition is physical carvings or images that do not represent false gods or deities, but rather record history, narrative, etc. One example of this is the soldiers that were carved on the walls of the Babylonian cities and that sort of thing. And we see an example of this in Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 14, that's referring up to Babylon. And it says, but she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion. And of course we know from excavation and all that sort of thing that all these ancient cultures would of course put their world or their nation's histories or battles that they won and they would depict these images on walls and tablets of stone and that sort of thing. The final use that we see of the word image is the momentary nature of mankind that disappears like a vapor. We see this talked about a lot in Ecclesiastes um, or a fading flower. And one example that we see of this is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 to 8, which says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word likeness is different than the word image, and it's used a lot in the book of Ezekiel, but usually in more non-specific senses to describe something being similar to something else. The phrases, the actual phrases, image of God and likeness of God are rare in scripture. Um, It's more of a principle that we see described and illustrated rather than like an actual phrase that we could just search for and pull a bunch of verses um, that reference that phrase. Now we're looking at what the Bible says about humans being made in the image of God. Um, Very first and most primary verse is Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, which says, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. We're going to refer back to these two verses quite a bit during this series. Next, we have Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, which says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for for God made man in his own image. Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. 
What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. Now this is a bit more abstract, but it alludes to the concept of man being made in God's image. Next, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, this is part of the head covering passage. We did a whole series on this. I think it's just about a year ago now. Um, you can scroll back in our feed to the episodes 71 through 74, which we released in September 2020. James chapter 3, verse 9 says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Um, this is part of the taming of the tongue passage, but it's speaking about being aware that when you use your tongue against somebody else, you're using it against somebody who's made in the image of God. So let's go back to that first verse Bethany read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Just as a quick refresher, it said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and all over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So here, of course, we see that God creates man and woman. Um, theologians have been debating since the Bible was written, pretty much, about how exactly humans image God. The theories range from man's unique aspect of spirituality um, to dominion over creation, original righteousness before God, and some would even argue hum humanity's sexuality. And we're going to get more in depth on all the different views later, which we'll touch on these Um like I've mentioned earlier, but for now, that's just kind of a quick overview. So when we talk about the image of God, it's pretty clear that the world is not perfect. And so the question is, what went wrong with man being made in God's image? At the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they broke their relationship with God and each other, marring their ability to truly be God's image bearers. We'll discuss later whether they were no longer God's image bearers or they were just lesser versions of image bearers. Um, the question also is if only Christians are image bearers or if everyone is, Christians are just more so. Um, it gets a little complicated. Although Genesis chapter 3 doesn't explicitly state that mankind's ability to represent God is severely damaged, the consequences God lists imply this concept. First is the relationship Adam and Eve had with God was broken. No longer could they stand in righteousness or right relationship with God on their own. Um, second, Adam and Eve had a damaged relationship with each other. So we see this when Adam blames Eve for his sin, and then God later informs Eve that her desire will be, quote, for her husband. Um, different translations translate this differently, but two popular views of this is that, one, this could mean that she will have the inclination to not biblically submit to her husband. That seems to be the more complementarian view. Or the more egalitarian view would be that she will simply be tempted to desire her husband more than God. Like her husband will kind of become a temptation to replace God. 
there's a few different approaches to this text and we're not going to get into that right now. Um, but regardless, Adam and Eve's relationship with each other has been broken. Um, third, Adam and Eve no longer have the same type of peaceful, compliant dominion over God's creation. God tells Adam that he is going to struggle with the earth to bring forth food. He's going to have to work really hard and with pain will he toil the ground. And finally, Adam and Eve uh, will eventually die. This goes against God's nature, of course, death itself. And it's not what God wants for us. His will is that we live with him forever, which is what he originally designed Adam and Eve to do. And of course, they lost that ability when they chose sin. So although humans' ability to represent God was marred by the fall, every person still images God. And we see this, uh, that's the stance we're going to take. And we see this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6 where God is talking to Noah and he says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. So keep in mind that God is telling Noah this after the fall sin has entered the world. And we know that Noah lived during a really, really morally corrupt time of the world. So God tells Noah that even in this sinful world, man still images God. It's still not okay to, hurt in any way another bearer of God's image. And this is something we're going to discuss more later. Um, So if the image of God has been broken or lost, can it be restored? The answer is salvation through Christ, as it always is. We can be restored as image bearers through salvation and sanctification. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 22 through 24 says, you took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. It's talking about our new selves are being formed and created in God's likeness. Verse 24 also connects being in right relationship with God with being an image bearer in the righteousness and purity of truth. Another point here is that progressive sanctification is the continual process of God changing us to be more like Jesus. A part of this is humans learning how to be better image bearers as we pattern our lives off of the true image bearer, Jesus. Bible passages about the restoration of the image of God are, we've got a list here. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Talking about how God's whole purpose is for us to be, to pattern our lives after Jesus, to become more like Jesus through our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 49 Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, referring to Jesus. The next verse we have is Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. And it's speaking about Christ and it says, Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So again, just reiterating that idea that we are going to be transformed to become more like Christ. And then Colossians chapter three, verse 10 says, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So this really speaks um, to the progressive sanctification that Bethany mentioned, where we are putting on this new self and it's being renewed in knowledge. As we learn more and more about Christ and the faith and God and his work in our lives, we become more and more renewed in the image of the one who created us. 
So we are going to stop there for today. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how Jesus is the true image of God. And we're going to also get into the whole conversation about gender. (laughs) Okay, sorry, I should rephrase that. We're not going to have the conversation about gender, (laughs) but we are going to talk about how men and women are both equally created in the image of God. And we're going to ask, are they even both equally in the image of God? And we're going to take several minutes and talk about that. So make sure you come back next week. We're going to continue this conversation. We're looking forward to that. And we hope that this has been helpful for giving you a good framework for how you can look at the image of God and how you yourself are made in the image of God. And uh, we're going to continue with a lot of these points. So hopefully this has given you a good laid some groundwork, given you a good foundation so that in the coming weeks, you'll have a better frame of reference as we continue to get more and more in depth in this topic. So with that, we're going to conclude this episode for this week and we will chat with you next week. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive Theology podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at thrivetheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.